I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Virago Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, Brought to you by Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. I'm with Claire Clark, and we're talking about her amazing new novel, In the Full Light of the Sun. Um, Claire, welcome to the Virago Podcast. Um, I thought it would be great to start by telling us quite tricky because this is a very beautiful, enigmatic, um, multifaceted novel. But if you could give us a little bit of idea of, of the story. Absolutely. Well, as you say, it is a, um, a broad story. It covers 10 years. And I wanted to look at this extraordinary period in German history, perhaps the most turbulent decade in uh, German history of all time, because in 10 years after the First World War, the Germans went from an extraordinary hyperinflation where people were carrying wheelbarrows of money to pay for a loaf of bread to being the cultural centre of Europe. And then within a few years to being in the worldwide depression after 1929 and then experiencing the rise of Hitler. And so what I've done is I've taken each of those parts of the history and try to look at them through the lens of a particular character. So my first character is Julius, uh, an art critic who is coming to the end of his career and has written a blockbuster book about uh, Van Gogh and really wants to be sure that this is the way that he is remembered, but is also going through a very difficult divorce. And when he meets a young man who wants to enlist his help in promoting paintings in Germany, in Berlin at this time, he becomes very attached to this young man. And we see their relationship develop. In the second section, we move to a young art student who Julius has met already, Emmeline, who herself is seeking both to find what kind of artist she is and what what paintings she wants to make, but also to identify her own sexuality. And during this extraordinary boom in creativity in Weimar Berlin, she is seeking to find out who she is. And she too 
interacts with this extraordinary young man, Matthias, who we've seen through Julius and his progression as an art dealer. And then the final section is a section with uh, a, a lawyer called Frank, who has by this time become involved too with this young man, Matthias, in helping him and is also trying to work out how on earth as a Jewish lawyer, he can remain safely in Berlin as Hitler and the Nazis clamp down ever increasingly on the opportunities for Jewish lawyers or indeed Jewish doctors or any kind of professional to work in Germany as the stranglehold of the uh, Nazi regime starts to take hold. And so you've got these char- you've got four main characters. So I like the way you've characterised Julius, who he loves paintings more than he loves people. <laughs> you've got Emmeline, this freewheeling artist, who does have a bit of Sally Bowles about her, to be mm. frank. Um, and then we have Frank, the Jewish lawyer. And the person that pulls them all together is this kind of shapeshifter fellow, isn't it? He's mm. a mercurial. They all see him in a different way. Matthias, how do you, tell us about him. Well, I think the interesting thing about him is that he is very different things to all three of these characters. And so he is really the thread that runs through all the sections. In many ways, this novel tells his story um, through the stories of three other people. And what's interesting about him, why I wanted to do that, is we project such an awful lot onto other people. And this man is seeking in some ways to get people to do that. You know, in a way, that's what he wants. And he is all things to all people. And so what he does is he acts not just as a character in his own right, but also as a mirror to the people he interacts with. So we see him through Julius and Emmeline and Frank's eyes, but we also see them as they are reflected Mm. back by him. And he is very different people in these three different sections, but he is very much himself, too. Mm. It, he reminds me even of um, Zena in The Robber Bride, Margaret Atwood's The mm. Robber Bride. You know, we never know who she is in the same way of Matthias, you know, that he is everything that people need him to be, and we don't really even know what the truth about him is. Exactly, and I think, you know, I think in many ways, one of the one of the conceits of novels is that we get to know people in a way we don't in real life. And what I liked about this novel was peeling back the layers of our central narrating characters, if you like, while exploring this idea that actually people are very much the construct of our own projections and our own hopes and fears for them. Mm. And um, in novelistic terms, we don't see that so much because we spend an awful lot of time inside people's heads. So Yes, I think that there is a great interest for me in exploring how we make people what we want them to be, and especially when those people are gaining an advantage from that. Yeah, because he's a clever man, isn't he? He knows what he knows what he wants from each of these people. Yes, and he's an, he's an actor. He's a showman. You know, we know we learn very early on that he has had a career before. He obviously is an art dealer by the time we meet him, but he has had a career as a dancer, mm. and his career as a dancer has involved him playing all sorts of parts. So mm. we know that he's very comfortable mm. with being whoever he needs to be. And why why do we? I mean, the times of Mr. Ripley would be another example mm. of this kind of. Shapeshifter, and why do we as readers feel so attracted to these people? Well, I think there is something very interesting about a novel where you're never quite sure how to respond to somebody. So, 
you feel that you're gaining a comfortable position with someone and then they do something that twists your expectations. And I think especially when um, in a novel uh, like this one where your eye isn't really centrally on that character, there's a, a shadowy rippling effect in the background. So we have this fairly steady guide in each of the three sections of this book, but underneath it there's this evasive elusive character and I like that because I think that the unreliable narrator has its strengths too and it's a very interesting thing to play with but there's also a very interesting game to be had with with a secondary character when that's the character that that changes and shifts and throws light on different facets of the characters the central characters we're getting to know yeah and it's very clever because you to begin with you don't actually think it is about him Mm. you know and what Julius um, interests me too. So he's the, the man who loves paintings more than people and who believes in the sort of the higher um, values on art, on art and beauty and things like that, but obviously just can't manage his relationships. It, but was he a tricky character to write? He was a tricky character to write. I think it's... I think he's very real. I, I think I know people like him. He is an aesthete. He loves beautiful things. He is distracted by the beautiful surfaces of things. Um, but he's also clever enough to know that's what happens. Um, but unable to resist the pull each time it comes. So he recognises it, but always a bit too late. And I think there can be issues there with making someone feel sympathetic if you feel they're making the same mistake but I think there is something about Julius that every time he makes a mistake it's rather different and he doesn't see it coming and I hope that what we feel in this section is that we don't really see it coming either and therefore we understand what pulls him and he's a very deeply principled man in his way Um, he is a man who believes that beauty holds a very important power over us in a way that improves our lives, Mm. that enhances us, that by being open to beauty, we become better people. And I hope that what I've done is is make us understand that feeling while also understanding its, its traps. And what do you feel? I think that beauty is extremely seductive. I think that there is something extraordinary about, I mean, one of the, we'll come to talk about this, I know, but the the paintings that that come through this book and repeat themselves over and over again are the paintings of Van Gogh. And those paintings exert an extraordinary power over us. Um, You know, doesn't matter how many times they've been reproduced. When you see them, they turn you inside out. And I think the being allowed to be turned inside out is a vital part of mm. remaining mm. human. And, and I think a resistance to beauty is just as dangerous mm. as an, Im- an a, 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 the inability to resist it. So tell. So you've introduced Van Gogh, which is, um, he's also the other shapeshifter mm. at the heart of this novel. Um, tell us about the story you, you've based, because this is a real life story, mm. isn't it, about Van Gogh that you've um, picked up? Absolutely. It was um, a story that I came across really by mistake, which was that in 1924, 1925, 33 previous... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Unseen Van Goghs turned up in Berlin. And it wasn't unusual at this time that paintings were turning up. It was a very, very turbulent time in Europe. And of course, after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and particularly after the death of Lenin at the beginning of 1924, when the white Russians gave up any chance, really, of, of being able to salvage the situation, a lot of amazing art found its way smuggled west. And of course, Berlin was pretty much the first serious capital you got to. So a lot of paintings, a lot of them without very much provenance, were turning up in Berlin at this time. And so these 33 Van Goghs, while unusual, were not extraordinary. And I have taken this idea of these 33 paintings, which caused absolute ripples through the art world in, um, well, both in Berlin and beyond. And they sold in France, in London, in America. They were snapped up all over the place. They were sent the prices of Van Gogh's absolutely spiralling. And I have taken this idea of these mysterious paintings. And it's this idea that runs through the novel. I, I haven't stuck at all closely, in fact, to the true life story. In the in the true life story, they turned up and um, eventually, first some were deemed to be fakes and then later all of them were dismissed as fakes. I separated quite early from the record because the record for me was just too often too preposterous. And the problem with novels is unlike non-fiction, you have an issue of credibility because otherwise it looks like you've made a mistake. <laughs> so... <laughs> I had to make my story much more credible than the real story. Uh, so, and also, I wanted I wanted to play with this idea of paintings, which honestly you had to choose whether to believe in or not. It wasn't really a case. There was no way of proving it. The technology didn't exist then to uh, identify very successfully whether paintings were real or not real. So people chose, and people made a decision on their own judgment about whether to believe in these paintings or not. And of course, once they'd made a judgment, they sort of had to stick to it. Um, they either had invested heavily financially or they'd invested their reputation very heavily in it. And so then you see people entrenching their position. And that's very interesting for a novelist. Mm -hmm. um, so just go back to the period of the Weimar 
Berlin. What drew you to that? Well, it, it's Aside interesting. Aside from the Van Gogh story. Um, well, the Van Gogh story almost came second. I mean, in a way, I, my previous novel, um, We That Are Left, I wrote about the aftermath of the First World War from the perspective of an English family who'd lost the sort of um, central figure in their family and were trying to work out how to exist without him. And all the time when I was researching that novel, the parallel German experience obviously kept coming up. And it was a very interesting question, which I couldn't deal with uh, under the cover of that novel, about it's one thing to deal with the aftermath of a catastrophe like the First World War if you win. It's quite another to deal with it if you lose. And I wanted to have a look from that point at the idea of recovering from a, a cataclysm when you don't have the comfort of feeling that at least it was worth it. Mm. And the Germans didn't have that. And they were incredibly confused about why they'd lost because all their propaganda had suggested right up until the last few months that they would, in fact, win. And I think that the marriage of Germany and Van Gogh was therefore very interesting because the Germans felt a particular affinity to Van Gogh because he was the patron saint, if you like, of people who lose in their lifetime but are afterwards vindicated. You know, he was the man who didn't sell a single painting, who lived in poverty, who was mad and cut off his ear. He had very little appreciation from people around him. People, the children in all threw stones at him, but he became this triumphant embodiment of modern art. And I think the Germans took a great deal of solace from that idea that you could be pilloried and hated and yet your time would come. Mm. Interesting. I haven't heard that theory before. Mm. That's, that is really good. Um, we've already got some terrific quotes for this novel. Already William Boyd and Stella Tilliard, Jane Harris and Amanda Craig have already uh, said how much they love it. Um, and the, but the one that's standing out for me right now is Rachel Seifert's. Mm. Rachel Seifert, who kindly read it. And she says, a wonderful novel, passionate, intelligent, humane, held me from the first page to the last. The house of cards that was the Weimar Republic provides a perfectly rendered backdrop for a story about our willingness to deceive in the pursuit of beauty. I love that line, willingness to deceive in the pursuit of beauty. Yes, it's a beautiful line, and it's wonderful to have a, a novelist who I admire as much as Rachel um, get the novel so um, completely. I, I find that amazingly um, touching and, and pleasing and delightful, actually. Um, but I think that that is very much what I'm interested in. I, to me, Van Gogh is the embodiment of our capacity to myth-make, but at the same time, we, you know, we have all these stories about Van Gogh we find it impossible to separate from. You know, however many times we're told that he didn't really cut his ear off, it was just a little bit, or he might have been shot by someone else, or um, he wasn't really mad. And certainly, the, the absolutely, the idea which comes out from all his letters, which is that his madness did not enhance his painting at all. In fact, he saw it as a block to his painting. So we hold on to all these myths that this that madness and genius are connected and that you have to be poor and crazy to be creative. And I really wanted to explore those ideas of why it is we want to 
believe in these myths when the work is so extraordinary because Van Gogh is this incredible transformative artist you know we we know from uh, Martin Bailey's wonderful book uh, The Sunflowers Are Mine that the space in front of the sunflowers in the National Gallery has to be revarnished, the floor has to be revarnished more than anywhere else in the museum because more people stand in front of it than any other painting. And so why is it that we love Van Gogh's work, which stands so completely on its own, so much more mm. with these extraordinary stories behind it? Mm. And But we do. Yeah. And so I wanted to try and capture that feeling mm. in the way that people responded in this moment in 1920s and 1930s Berlin to Van Gogh's work. You've produced, an, as Rachel has said, a beautiful, satisfying book. And do you have um, an idea when you're writing? Do you think you, know, you have an obligation to the reader to give them that pleasure? Or the, is that something you, know, you as a reader and as a, as a writer, prize? Oh, absolutely. I think it's very, it's a really interesting balance in a novel, isn't it? You want to give people a satisfying read, but also you want to reflect reality as you see it. And life is chaotic and messy and difficult. And so the balance as a novelist is feeling that you've created characters that are suitably conflicted and chaotic, but also delivered a book that actually not only raises questions, but somehow gives you some sort of idea of how to get an answer, hopefully not laying them out one by one, but but leads you towards a possibility of resolution, even if that resolution happens in your own mind after completing a novel. I certainly think that nobody owes it to me or to any novelist to read our books. So we have to ensure that it's entirely immersive. And I think about that a lot as I'm writing. People often ask who your ideal reader is, and I don't have any idea about that at all. But I do have a sense of wanting to make sure that when I read a novel, my most favourite thing is that feeling you have all day when you're doing other things where you think, well, this world's okay, but the world that really matters to me right now is the world of the book that I'm reading and I just want to get back to it. And that's the feeling I'm always chasing when I'm writing a novel. I want to feel that anyone who's in the middle of reading a novel by me is thinking all the day when they're on the bus or they're in the supermarket or they're doing whatever they're doing at their desk at work, that they're thinking, oh, please, when do I get to go back to it? It's great. I I had that feeling all the way through, I must say. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and also leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. We'd also love you to be in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or our website, virago.co.uk. Tune in next month for another installment of Books, Feminism, and Conversation from Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.